Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. So we begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, does Nicola Sturgeon's departure end Scottish independence hopes? I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. Trailblazer and straight shooter Nicola Sturgeon has resigned as Scotland's First Minister. Giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. There is absolutely no doubt the independence movement is at a crossroads. I think any unionist who is desperately hoping that Nicola Sturgeon's departure means the death of the independence campaign is kidding themselves. I'm Fiona Anjean, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Deputy Political Editor of The Scotsman, Connor Matchett, about whether this is the end for the Scottish independence movement. The independence case is a powerful one. More and more people in Scotland are being persuaded by it. And I believe passionately that it is one with the power to unite. A Scotland that is an equal partner with our friends in the rest of the UK and across Europe will be good for all of us. Connor, can you tell me about Nicola Sturgeon's background and and her emergence into politics in the earlier days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's she joined the SNP um, back in the days when it was considered a little bit of a fringe party. Frankly, um, you know, she she's been a member since um, I think she was sixteen, seventeen, something around those age. Um, so she's been involved in the SNP from a very early age, certainly you know, at the top of the SNP for decades now. Um, she was a solicitor in, in Glasgow prior prior to her career in in politics. And, you know, she was born in Ayrshire, comes from a, a a classic kind of West Coast Scotland background, very working class background. Um and yeah, I mean she she she's um scaled the political ladder, if you like, in her career. Um, you know, she she lost many elections in the 90s um, as Labour came back to power um, and was elected for the first time in 1999 um, in the first Scottish parliamentary election. And she's been um, a a senior figure within the SNP, certainly, um, and on frontline politics and at the front of SNP politics ever since. It is quite clear that, you know, her career straddles decades. It straddles the, that incredible story of the SNP's kind of rush to power and um, shock at surprise kind of win in 2007 alongside Alex Salmond. Um, so it's been a it's been one hell of a career, to put it mildly. 
On Anis uh, Sarwar, I think Douglas Ross's mutterings from a sedentary position perhaps suggest that he may need to develop a sense of humour in this parliament if he's going to uh, flourish in any uh, way. Showing, of course, that my stock of self-awareness is in perfectly healthy condition. Strangely, you should kind of she cites Margaret Thatcher as a motivation, more in a kind of a negative way than a positive way yeah. uh, for her. And do we get that sense that it it was those working class values which very much drove her on? Absolutely. I, th I think like much of the SNP in the 80s and the, and the membership um, particularly who grew up in the 70s and 80s in the West Coast of Scotland, which which came under such you know significant attack as they would you know, characterize it from the UK government and Margaret Thatcher. Um, that that has really solidified their views on where Scotland should be in, on independence and that kind of left-wing, um, broad church approach to politics. Now, I think Nicola Sturgeon in particular, you know, she she's she's very proud of where she comes from. She's very proud of that background. She sees herself, I think, to a degree as someone who has bucked the trend in politics in general, particularly in Scotland, which was extremely male-dominated until devolution. Um, and she, she, she took that Thatcherite approach of being, of, of basically getting to the point where she was acting like a man in the public sphere. And I don't mean that in a pejorative manner. It was, she would say herself that she did it deliberately to, to um, basically become someone who people took seriously. Um, and I think she, she, as much as she was motivated by Thatcher, I think she partially modelled herself on that, that very clear motivation to change the country. Um, absolutely. Goes back to that. The SNP, their growth in Scotland comes back to the impact of, of Thatcher and, and also the kind of complacency from Labour in the early years of devolution as well. Yeah, the independence referendum. She was a she was a pretty prominent figure in in that, given her role in the SNP at the time. Was she the natural successor then to Alex Salmon? Do you think she absolutely was? By that point, there was no there was. I mean, unlike this time, <laughs> which um, we we we. I mean, we could we could toss around six or eight names um, of who might replace uh, Nicola Sturgeon in twenty fourteen. There was only one possible. Um, successor and this was partially due to the fact that she had been in charge of the referendum organization and the, and the campaigning she was basically given that role by alex salmond um in the years running up to the to the referendum an independent country where those of us who live here shape the future and work together to overcome our challenges will be good for all of us a country fairer and f fundamentally i'm this is something that us as journalists in Scotland really do recognise. And I think that parts of the commentary who don't realise, who don't follow Scottish politics quite so much, is that she is a phenomenal communicator and she's always been a phenomenal communicator. She didn't learn this from while being First Minister. It wasn't coached into her. She's always had this ability to talk to people, communicate well um, and get the point across while still gaining that kind of respect and leadership profile. And um, so when Alex Salmond left, I mean it was it was a it was really it was a coronation rather than a, 
any any sort of election. Um, and it was something that everyone kind of saw as the natural succession um, for the SNP and particularly her individually. Yeah, politics is is often all about timing, and and the SNP probably got unlucky with the timing of the referendum in that it was it was in a pre-Brexit uh, Britain. You'd one wonders what what would have happened if the, the referendum had taken place just a, a, a couple of years uh, later. So she emerges from that movement, and her her objective then is to kick on and and push on further uh, for for Scottish uh, independence. Has she done that? I mean, we're not the the UK Supreme Court uh, has overturned any suggestion of another referendum. Has the the independence movement moved on as such since 2014 when she took over as leader? So that's a really interesting question because I think it ultimately it depends who you ask. So I think one thing that people need to remember when looking at the progress from 2014 to today is that prior to the election, sorry, to the referendum. Um, independence polling was languishing, you know, I think around 30%. It was, it was significantly below where it is today. And the chances of Scottish independence happening was, was viewed as just ridiculously remote. And it's credit to both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon and the wider Yes movement in that 2014 referendum that they got to the point where, you know, the UK government were absolutely terrified with days to go that the yes vote might actually win. Um, I think what Nicola Sturgeon's legacy will, will will be on independence is that of kind of a nearly, she's the nearly woman. I, I, I honestly think if she'd have led um, the independence referendum in 2014 rather than Alex Salmond, who had the ability to rub certain parts of the electorate the wrong way, um, that, that 45% might have been even closer to the 50, may even have gone over the 50. Um, but she she came in at the wrong time to a degree. She was the right person at the wrong time. The Alex Salmon dynamic is interesting. As you say, worked very closely with him, the heir apparent, and that's all gone now. I mean, that relationship really did cave. Can, can, you, can you just look back for us about how that deterioration came about? Yeah, so I won't go into the depths of it because um, it's immensely complex, but the, the, the long and short of it is that um, their relationship had it had been wavering a little bit after um, Salmond resigned. He he made what Sturgeon would consider a a, a horrendous mistake in accepting a a job on Russia Today um, on his with his own TV show. And around 2018, 2019, um, there was a, 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 a few complaints. This was after the Me Too movement about Alex Salmon's um, conduct um, while he was first minister. This this led to an independent investigation, uh, which was completely botched by the by the Scottish government. And this all came out in the press um, months later. Um, and effectively, what happened was that Nicola Sturgeon, this is her line at least, refused to let those. Um, allegations be swept under the carpet and Alex Salmond had the view that you know she should trust him as her mentor and her close friend um, and the, the 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 relationship soured rapidly um and has only gotten worse since um particularly the Salmond inquiry in parliament 2 years ago was a deeply um divisive experience for the SNP and I think 
Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, you know, they're, they're unlikely to ever speak to each other ever again because of the disagreements on this. Salmond fundamentally believed that Nicola Sturgeon and her, her closest advisors wanted him to go to jail. And he was obviously acquitted in a, in a trial um, in 2020. But that's his belief. It's, it's hard for a relationship to recover from that. There's also a, a bit of an overlap in terms of what, what's referred to as, as the ferries fiasco, which is a good old-fashioned political scandal involving cronyism, political allies and cash. I love the ferries scandal. All of, a lot of my colleagues get sick and tired of it, but it's one of my favourite stories. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Alex, Alex Salmond, I, again, I'll, I'll try not to bore your listeners <laughs> with it, but um, in 2014, um, one of Alex Salmond and the SNP's big business beasts, um, Jim McCall, helped save a shipyard. Um, that shipyard later, under Nicola Sturgeon's government, got awarded the... Uh, the um, the contract to build two two ferries. Um, those ferries, seven six years later now, aren't built. Um, they've cost the government three hundred million pounds. They were meant to cost around a hundred million pounds initially. You've said repeatedly uh, in TV studios and, and in Parliament that the buck stops uh, with you. But what does this actually mean in your government? What are the consequences of a quarter of a billion pounds being spent on two ferries that are five years late? and might possi possibly launch into obsolescence. Our fundamental uh, responsibility and my responsibility is to ensure that we deliver uh, the contract and that the vessels are completed um, and that we properly learn uh, the lessons uh, that need to be learned. And I am uh, very serious about that responsibility. Ultimately, that story is a case of absolute terrible decision-making across the board, across three different pu public agencies, and has been incredibly politically damaging for the SNP in the west coast of Scotland and on the islands where people rely on these ferries, you know, day-to-day -to, -day to, to get food. Um, it's, a, it's a great example, as you say, of the classic political scandal. <laughs> got a, got a, a bit like the cash for hash uh, we had in Northern Ireland. I'm not going to go exactly. into the amount of political scandals we've had <laughs> south of the border that could take all day. What about, though, <laughs> a, a more immediate social issue that many people are kind of linking to her departure and, and it certainly was a controversy that, that flared up in more recent times. That's transgender issues. How do you think she handled that and explain to us the significance of the Isla Bryson case? Yeah, so the, the Scottish government attempted to pass and successfully did pass in the end the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, which um, in short, is intended to make it easier for transgender people to legally get a gender recognition certificate and change their gender. Removing the need for medical diagnosis uh, for a trans person who wants to legally change their gender is actually one of the purposes of this legislation because the need for that is one of the most uh, intrusive, traumatic and dehumanising parts of the current system. And I believe I've been, you know, and uh, as a woman, uh, I know very much what it is like to live with the fear at times uh, of potential violence from uh, men. Uh, I'm a feminist. Uh, I will argue for women's rights. I will do everything I can to protect women's rights for as long as I live. It's based on a what's often termed a self-identification basis. And this, this has caused deep divisions within the party. 
um, you know, high-profile SNP MPs such as Joanna Cherry, um, who has the backing of, you know, and the ear of J.K. Rowling and and figures like that, you know, incredibly against this, and it turned into this vile, vicious, kind of furious debate in the Scottish Parliament at right at the back end of last year, um, and uh, it was one of the most horrible experiences to cover and um, the discourse on online is hideous and um, no one comes out of it smelling of roses by any sense of the imagination um but it was passed and a lot of us thought well that was that and then as you mentioned like the isla bryson case which is the case of a double rapist um being sent to a women's jail because they identify as a woman um came up and this to a lot of the scottish government's opponents kind of was held up as an example of exactly why this legislation and this social progress, as the SNP would put it, um, was mad and was dangerous even. And I, I think, you know, Nick, you, you mentioned it, it's been linked to her departure. I think that is a, mis, a, a misapprehension. It's I think you have to take the First Minister on face value when she talks about why she's left. If this was just a question of my ability or my resilience to get through the latest period of pressure, I wouldn't be standing here today, but it's not. This decision comes from a deeper and longer term assessment. I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it, albeit with oscillating levels of intensity for some weeks. The thing that undermines the, the idea that this has impacted her decision the most is that she's gone through worse. You know, the the GRR and the gender reform debate has been horrible. It will have taken its toll. There's no doubt it will have taken its toll. She's been more had to be more visible and more open to question on certain things on this than she has for anything for a long time. I think that was a, um, a major misstep. Uh, and certainly, the you know, the, the Scottish press corps and indeed the, the London press corps were on her case uh, because it, it was legislation which quite easily had... You could detect flaws in it, to say the very least, and it alienated many women's campaigners, you know, who saw it as a threat to their single-sex spaces. So it was a big, big misstep. But you'd think, you know, what you would do there is you'd resolve it. But in 2021, we mentioned earlier the Salmon Inquiry. That was harder, I think, for her personally. That was some. That was going over her judgment as um, the closest political ally to someone who she now considers to have behaved inappropriately, deeply inappropriately. And I think as well, the COVID pandemic, I don't think the impact on her from that experience quite crystallized until maybe midway through last year. She was taking questions from us. I mean, it was exhausting to be part of as a journalist. And we'd have these hour and a half daily briefings with the First Minister um, over Zoom on talking all things COVID. I mean, for, for a politician, that is exhausting. So I think the idea that short-term pressures have sparked this decision is probably wrong. It certainly will have had an impact. I do wonder if it. she talked about it crystallising in recent weeks and the idea that she might not have had enough in the tank. I think there's probably a bit of truth that the recent transgender debate has impacted that decision timing-wise, but I don't think it's the reason why she's going. Yeah, she's spoken about the, the brutality uh, of of politics now. That's probably reflective of what you've been talking about 
there and and also just needing the the energy and and the commitment and the toll that it takes uh, upon your your personal life just to be a, a political leader now what next though for the SNP as you say there's a, a vast number of names being thrown around but nobody quite obvious no it's a really difficult decision for the SNP and it'll be interesting you know as we're speaking we don't know really what the process is going to be how long it's going to take um what the impact on what they're terming a special democracy conference, which is set to um, decide the independent strategy for the party going forward. And um, that's due to happen in, in late March. So all of this is up in the air. One of the things that I think is is was obvious from her speech yesterday is that Nicola says she definitely believes that there's, there's talent. One of the things that I think is a legitimate criticism of her time in office is that there isn't an obvious successor. There is absolutely no doubt that the independence movement is at a crossroads. I think any unionist who is desperately hoping that Nicola Sturgeon's departure means the death of the independence campaign is kidding themselves. People said that around the time of Alex Salmon's departure. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, what the SNP needs is fresh leadership. It needs a, a fresh voice. It needs a, a change in approach. Um, and Nicola Sturgeon re- reflected on it herself yesterday. She had become a divisive figure on which issues were decided upon in the home. People would look at something that the SNP was saying, would ignore the policy and would de- decide it on what they thought of Nicola Sturgeon. That's why who they choose next is so important. Because if they pick someone who is as good at, as Nicola Sturgeon in communication, there's no reason why the independence campaign can't continue and continue to grow. If they get that choice wrong, then they'll look back at the last eight years and go, that was our chance and we've missed it. We obviously have a a keen eye on the potential for Scottish independence here because the the fragmentation of the UK would have significant implications for for Ireland and and the, the debate on United Ireland. What about Nicola Sturgeon? What next? Do you do you see her going back to open up a small legal practice in West West <laughs> Scotland in Ayrshire somewhere or, or do you think we'll hear from her again at all? I think she is a politician through and through. I, th- I don't think you stay in politics for, the, for as long as she has without having a real drive to make change. Um, she said already that she'll stay in MSP at least until the 2026 Hollywood election, which means that she'll be involved in the in the next general election campaign, she'll probably be a very big figure in that 2024 general election campaign in Scotland, um, at the very least. Um, you know, there's, there's suggestions that she might go and work for the UN. She was very visible at COP26 in Glasgow, um, and she's been a strong proponent of the climate change agenda as well in recent years. Um, I think she, she'll find something to do um, she won't. She'll, she'll absolutely not be short of offers. That's for sure. Um, I think she's, she mentioned yesterday as well the um, experience of care, experience children in Scotland. That's clearly a very deep set passion of hers. Um, so it could be something on that. I think we'll see her as as someone who will have a, a an influence on politics more globally. Though that's my instinct. Um, It'll be interesting to see what she does next. Um, I think a lot of people in Scotland will be hanging on her every word from now on, um, certainly until potentially there's a, there's a change of government. And my thanks to Connor Matchett for joining me today. 
I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Tabitha Monahan, researched by JJ Clark, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, STV, and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review.